This is an ABC podcast. Okay, I am so excited to bring you this chat today. I know I said it last time, but this was literally one of my favourite interviews I've ever done. Like, my mind is blown by how much people in history and ancient history were actually just horny as fuck and kinky as shit. Literally into shit. You've probably come across her on your TikTok or maybe scrolled past one of her videos because she's got 2.3 million followers. Her name is Esme Louise James, aka at Esme.Louise with three E's. She's an author and she's doing her PhD on the origins of porn in the 18th century. But more broadly, she studies sex history and she has a series on TikTok called Kinky History. With this series, she talks about so much stuff like covers so much stuff about the origins of sex toys, about nylon fetishes, about how common STIs were in the Georgian era, the importance of blowjobs in ancient Egypt, how women used to fake their virginities and then teach each other how to do it. Uh, she reads a lot of like ancient dirty talk and she talks about famous historical figures and some of the kinks that they had, which you'll hear about really soon. Let's just say that Mozart loved What's really special is Esme is one of the only few sex historians in the whole world and I learnt so much from her. So I'm just super excited for you to also get this very special kinky history lesson. I'd love to start off by asking, how did you find, before we get into all of the like different histories, which I'm so excited to discuss, how did you find yourself actually studying sex history, in particular doing your PhD? Look, it's a very niche category. Um, I think one of the things in academia is that it's very hard to just touch sex subtly. As soon as you kind of go there to that progressive extreme, you're almost tainted. So it's like a sink or swim situation. You either have to never touch it, um, but I wanted to touch the butt. Um, and so I very quickly just became sex girl. Um, and as soon as I started to, um, it was initially just like a little article that I published on the history of the dildo. And as soon as I did that, it was just all of these requests to write about um, other stories, like the history of the vibrator or talk about other things, you know, things I hadn't really thought about before um, because no one else was talking about it. Um, and that's just kind of how I ended up accidentally uh, swimming in the world of sex. <laughs> and thank God you did. Thank God. <laughs> because now we are being educated on so many things that I never thought that I would be educated on. Like just through spending hours scrolling through kinky history on your TikTok, I, my mind was just blown. I was like, I cannot believe so much of stuff that people probably feel ashamed about mm -hmm. is so historically normal. Absolutely. I've always been quite obsessed with sex. I don't know if that's weird to say. Um, but especially coming from quite a conservative, no, I wouldn't a conservative upbringing, but a place where no one really talked about sex, that as soon as I got to university and I was I was studying initially the history of religion, um, mm. so I've changed a little bit, um, but I was uh, studying literature mainly. And every time it kind of came to these scenes, sometimes we were like, you know, in books that would mention like very sadomasochistic scenes and we would just kind of brush over it. And I was like, why aren't we talking about this? Why did we ignore this? And I've always been someone that just wants to know why we're not allowed to talk about something. So I've just become mm. obsessed, I think, from 18. Well, this is <laughs> the, the perfect show to have you on because 
that's what we do here. Like we really do delve into all of the stuff that people might not really talk about. So Mm -hmm. let's do that right now. I would love to go through a bunch of history lessons, I guess, when it comes to different like sex acts, maybe fetishes and kinks and also, you know, homosexuality, dirty talk in the 1800s. My favourite topic. Yes, I can't wait. (laughs) Let's start off with Esme, the history of self-pleasure. I think the history of self-pleasure is so interesting because we are still coming through a time where we're talking about sex being taboo at times um, and masturbation being taboo, whereas masturbation was so common in the ancient world that it wasn't even mentioned that much. It was very much like sleeping or eating or shitting. No one cared. It just happened. You know, the only time that it was really on par, there's this uh, fantastic uh, philosopher in um, ancient Greece and he once just, you know, um, masturbated in public in, in, in front of the town square. And no one was shocked because he was masturbating. It was because... It was as controversial as him eating in public because you didn't do bodily acts in public. So him eating in the middle of the Colosseum was just as controversial as when he masturbated in the town square and also when he decided to take a shit during a theatrical performance. These were equally as controversial. And that's Dionysus. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> what a legend. I, I'm, I'm gonna do, uh, let me, I need to double check before this. I think it's Diogenes. Okay. Diogenes. I was like, who is this? Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. So really, if we looked at it, we probably have gone the other, a bit more the other way throughout history. It really changes in the 1700s. And this is when we change our opinion on a lot of things. Um, This is around the time where church comes into politics, local politics. Uh, Really, you know, it's always been a part for many, many years, but this becomes very, very apparent. And we change our thinking again about every bodily act. Masturbation is no different. We change our opinion about eating. Uh, No longer are we kind of allowed sweets and everything, but they think bland foods will connect you more with God. We change our opinion, therefore, also on masturbation. And it becomes uh, this pseudo uh, surgeon basically publishes this pamphlet about the dangers of self-pollution and how women will go insane if they self-pollute themselves by touching themselves and men will become infertile and uh, you know he's he was a fraud surgeon and was very much you know very later all of his theories were debunked but the church took this and kind of ran with it while they're doing their uh, changes towards eating. Uh, you also had changes towards homosexuality at that same moment. This is mid-1700s. Really, again, homosexuality before then was so uncontroversial it didn't even need a name. So around the same time, we give a name to both homosexuality and masturbation. He, he names in that pamphlet masturbation for the first time. It didn't need a name previously. We just did it. You know, we were just spilling our cubby custard all over the place like it was fine (laughs) no one really cared (laughs) let's talk about homosexuality because it is something that you talk about heaps on your tiktok Mm -hmm. what was it like in the ancient world it sounds like there was a pivotal point where it changed it where Mm -hmm. he named it but what was it like prior to that i mean going back to the ancient world homosexuality was an important 
part of life. It wasn't just something that happened. It was incredibly important uh, to conceptions about what it meant to be a man and, you know, later what it meant to be a woman. Uh, So in ancient uh, Greece, quite famously in ancient uh, Roman places, there was a relationship called um, pedestry, which is when an older man will basically become he's the guardian of the younger boy. Now, they weren't really allowed to have contrary to popular opinion, any kind of bodily relations, but they express this love for one another. And this develops this idea in the ancient world about homosexuality among men, where whoever's superior has to like be the kind of penetrating dominant force in any homosexual relation. So once you become an adult in the ancient world, you are allowed to engage in whatever gay activity you want to, but you just can't be a bottom. Being a bottom, shameful terrible. No bottoms. Um, Being a bottom is something that was only intended for like the feminine position. Um, Being a receiver was associated with being a woman. Uh, So the only person that could be a bottom was someone of a lower social standing than you. So basically, this is not so much an instance of homophobia. This was just misogyny. We just had misogyny in the ancient world. We didn't have homophobia. (laughs) I think that's a win. I don't know. (laughs) Good to know it started in the ancient world. (laughs) Um, Esme, um, speaking of, you know, queer relations, you mentioned someone in your TikToks called, I think it's the Sappho of Lesbos? Yes, yes. Sappho is this fantastic uh, woman figure, Um, you know, famously Sappho of Lesbos. Lesbos, that's where we get lesbian. Um, and on the Isle of Lesbos, um, she writes all of this fantastic kind of erotic poetry about woman's love. And while erotic relations were kind of practiced in male schools, uh, at women's schools of the time, she introduces uh, homosexual relations into their schools as well. They're like, girls should get with other girls in their year level and practice womanly love. And so she kind of runs this <laughs> erotic lesbian school um love that (laughs) i know i'm like how do we sign up (laughs) and what's so like fantastic about it is that she you know she's publishing all of these poems and everything and aristotle um, and other philosophers at the time are like really mad at her because they're like this is only something that men can do only men can touch other men women stop touching one another you're getting distracted um and so he starts to call um like oral sex uh lesbazine um the behavior practiced on lesbos so that's kind of the first instance of the word lesbian really because it was just linked to carnalingos, what other girls were doing to each other on the Isle of Lesbos. Wild. It really is. And so it's only when she has a resurgence in like the 1700s that <gasps> um, people start to, you know, actually use the word lesbian to refer to women relationships. Because prior to that, anything that came from Lesbos was described as lesbian. You could order lesbian wine. Which is something that if you ever go through history books, sometimes people get very confused as to why people have like lesbian food and like lesbian <laughs> wine. Um, it just before that, it just referred to anything from the Isle of Lesbos. Later, it became the love that women practiced on Lesbos, which is Sappho deciding that women should love other women. <laughs> An icon. An icon I didn't know that we needed to love. Yeah. Um, speaking of cunnilingus, what is the... <laughs> what, what, what is the... <laughs> what, that's what we do here. <laughs> um, <what laughs> it's like the most organic conversation you've probably ever had. It's, it's wonderful. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is the history of giving heads? Like, 
<laughs> historically, was it something as like normalized as it is today? Uh, more normalized, way more normalized. Again, it's kind of like being a bottom. In some places, it was really degrading to be uh, the giver in the oral relationship. So uh, anywhere in the, the brothels of ancient Greece and Rome, no giving, um, but you are more than welcome to receive. Um, but then at other times, uh, it actually forms part of like cultural awareness. So blowjobs are a massive part of ancient Egyptian mythology um, and they come into like all of the origin stories of the gods. Uh, most famously in this situation where we have Set, who is like the god of chaos, his brother um, Osiris and his wife, who is also his sister, um, called Isis. And at one stage, there's like this war for the throne and basically um, Set goes and chops his brother's ding-dong off and throws it among the fishes into like sashimi. And then Isis is trying to retrieve all of her brother's body that's been cut up into parts, but she can't find his ding-dong. Mm-hmm. And so what she does is like she forges a fake ding-dong out of mud puts it on the dismembered body and gives him like the best blowjob of his life and brings him back to life. And then that's how he kind of becomes like this god of the underworld kind of thing because, you know, she's given him a blowjob that's literally brought him back to life. There was a rumour or a myth going around about Cleopatra. Cleopatra and her bees. (laughs) Yes, but also giving blowjobs? Golden mouth. Yes. That's actually a really interesting one. So the rumour is that uh, Julius Caesar nicknamed her Golden Mouth uh, because she was so good at giving blowjobs and allegedly had 100 men in one night. The... Real story is that Golden Mouth was actually the name of a kind of gossip uh, from ancient Rome who wrote the histories of uh, ancient Egypt. And when he came to write like the histories and everything, he didn't want to write, and a lot of historians at the time, you were very, very biased, about a successful female ruler. Mm. So what would happen for figures like Cleopatra was that they would kind of use her sexuality against her um, and so even though Golden Mouth was his name and he wrote about her being extra sexy and not getting anything done because she was with all these men somehow in history we've kind of conflated those two things but you know the reality of it was you know Cleopatra was a very sexually autonomous woman she was an incredibly good leader and she had a lot of partners and it's one of those situations where women's sexual autonomy is kind of being changed against them same thing kind of happened with Catherine the Great later in mm. history as well and um, that your families will deliberately use women being very comfortable in their sexuality against them but like so good that's changed now hey I love like we obviously know a lot about Catherine the Great from the TV show the Great, <laughs> but I love that part of history and knowing that about her I was like I didn't know and I was like I oh, love that well Get it, Catherine they I really want them to cover the erotic furniture that's yes so tell us Okay, no, wait. I'm, getting, I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. Okay, let's circle back to I want to talk about the history of rimming. Uh, I feel like so we talk I. about it a lot on the hookup in a sense that's like, oh, my God, this has become like a popular thing <laughs> to do and talk about in meme culture over the past couple of years uh-huh. and like the whole flume and peaches thing and whatever. But what has it been like historically? We've always rimmed. 
We've we've always been quite big on Rumin. Uh, really interestingly, uh, Rumin's kind of always been a part of our histories. Uh, there's like a fantastic moment in like uh, Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales where uh, this woman confuses her suitor that she doesn't want by uh, making him believe that her butt is her lips. And so in The Canterbury Tales, there is a moment where a woman just gets rimmed, <laughs> which iconic um but it's kind of gone through various uh, iterations if we think that butt sex has occasionally been linked to uh effeminacy and not being great rimming uh at sometimes was really really humorous and for a while it was linked with witchcraft so oculus in flame was known as the forbidden kiss and this was actually believed that when a woman wanted to become a witch she would uh rim the devil they don't really mention that in medieval history. We kind of had this very uh, clean version where she writes her name into the devil's book. But no, Oculus in Flame, she would rim the devil. Uh, it was called the Witch's Greeting. And so every time they saw the devil, supposedly, they <laughs> would kiss his butt. And what's so fantastic about this moment is that we have like all of these reports and writings of the time where they'll be like, I saw this woman kiss the devil's butt and that's how they get like done for witchcraft and there's also a moment where like a bunch of knights who were charged with heresy are charged because they were rimming one another and so they were charged as heretics (laughs) and kind of associated with witchcraft because they were rumored to have been practicing homosexual relations so people would accidentally walk in on this happening and (laughs) it was illegal because it was considered witchcraft so then what, they would then have to report them? Like, I'm so confused about the process. And then would they deny it? Like, and then... This is no, like, I did not rim Mariella. I like. promise. I promise I didn't do it. Um, But the, it's one of those things that sometimes um, they may not have even walked in. It was just a, a rumour or a hearsay. But that should tell us as well that we were so well aware of the practice of rimming that it was enough in the cultural awareness that we could use it to condemn people for heresy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like not a made-up thing. No. You know? And one of the funniest things is that around a lot of medieval um, texts, they because they would generally illustrate things in the margins to kind of hold people's attention, um, which is why you see all these fantastic illustrations, which we often think about having, like, beautiful flowers and all of this kind of stuff. No, a lot of medieval manuscripts just have depictions of people rimming to hold our attention. Because it was, like, and this goes well into, like, the 1700s, uh, we would associate, like, kissing butt, like, by being someone who's sucking up to someone who whose morality is, like, degraded. So after we associated rimming with witches, it became linked to the devil. And so the devil is often depicted with his head on his butt because it is, like, disordered morality. You're so evil and you have such little morals that your head's in your ass. And that's where rimming happens. And so we would then have these depictions in medieval manuscripts of men kissing other men's butts and donkeys kissing other donkeys' butts because nature has become so disordered, our morality is so bad that we're just rimming. I guess it's like saying, like, you're an asshole or you're like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. But, like, and that's also, you know, where the association of arsehole came from because in a lot of Christian uh, texts from the time, the butt was considered, like, the most 
morally degrading area of the body. Like the body is considered something that's sinful and the butt was the worst of it because it was like the lowest from God <laughs> where the light do not shine. Like, um, So calling someone an asshole or uh, this kind of association of like you're kissing ass yep. was the word today would just kind of be like you're just someone so lacking in any kind of principles or ethics what do we what do we call someone like that (laughs) yeah I'm like it's so hard to try and put it into words for the equivalent today but it's like really interesting to know where the link came from yeah and something that we'll talk about really soon is there's a lot of historical figures (laughs) who were obsessed with rimming And or the R's, which I'm excited to, to touch on. But first, I do want to talk about um sex toys. Yes. You cover this a lot in your series. Absolutely. What are some, like historically, what are some of the objects or maybe household, <laughs> like household <laughs> items that people would use as sex toys? Absolutely. Okay, so the first thing we need to establish is sex toys are, at our current estimate, 28,000 years old. So we, for context, invented writing at 5,000 years ago. So we were far more concerned with giving ourselves a good orgasm than we were like recording it in written language. 28,000 years is the oldest dildo. It was found in this German cave um, in a series of five fragments and they finally put the last one together and lo and behold, we have this siltstone object with a little ring around the top which was, quote, highly polished at the top from overuse. This is in their official study. Now, we have other objects like that that have been found from like 15,000, 10,000, 5,000 all over the world. We've worked out that siltstone in, in cases in China, jade um, were fantastic substitutes for other things, bedroom toys. In in some cases in the Han Dynasty, you were actually buried with your favorite bedroom toy because it was considered, sexual pleasure was considered really important for like aligning the body's energies. Um, and they believed that people continue to live on inside of their tombs. So it was really important to bury your Aunt Betty with her favorite dildo. So when she wakes up in the tomb, she can kind of get herself off and get to the afterlife. What? <laughs> so like... Yoni eggs and like crystal dildos mm-hmm. that has all yeah. originated from 28,000 years ago. Absolutely. And so like especially jade as well was con- is considered a crystal that kind of warns off uh, evil spirits and kind of protects you. And it was considered, uh, especially in the Han Dynasty, that when you were in a moment of sex, it was the closest that you could get to the spiritual world, uh, to the boundaries of life and death, that moment of orgasm. So if you're using a dildo, you want it to be made of jade to kind of protect you against any evil spirits that may try and invade your body while you're just trying to come. What about butt plugs? What about oh, but, but butt plugs? Um, you were also you had butt plugs in the tombs as well because you, you know it. Uh, and a lot of uh, fun fact: when you're buried today, they put a butt plug in you normally because uh, liquids come out. So we actually use butt plugs today to bury our dead. I didn't know that. Yeah, you will be buried with a butt plug. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh my god, Esme! I can't deal with how much your brain knows. <laughs> It's really disturbing. (laughs) It's incredible. But like a lot of the, you know, talking about butt plugs, 
my fave. Um, you know, when we were using these dildos, there was we weren't just using them on women. You know, these were also dildos for men um, all throughout history. Um, and we have like this fantastic uh, going to ancient Greece. There's this a uh, bread dildo. We have breadsticks that are made uh, solely for bedroom use. Uh, they are extra hard kind of baguettes and they were used olive oil for lubrication in ancient Greece uh, which is why a lot of pots when you see them today people are often shocked while they see the pottery from ancient Greece and it's all got like you know erotic art and orgies and everything on it because olive oil wasn't just for eating and for your skin they used it as lubrication in ancient Greece and a lot of people still use it today it's it's good just don't use it with condoms because it will degrade them (laughs) but um, there was this rumour, we don't know if it's real, but I really want it to be real, that these specifically hard breadsticks were made um, in place of dildos at the time so that men could kind of, you know, shove other men with their poppy-seeded baguette kind of thing. Uh, we don't know if this is true. We have multiple references to it in, like, art and in dictionaries from the time, but there is a rumour that it was just a massive inside joke because people loved olive oil and um, that they should also... It, like, just... It's is a meme of the time. Bre- right. So they're like, you're so obsessed with olive oil, you should just chuck, you should just put your baguette in the olive oil and, and shove, then it, shove it up your ass. ass. Yeah, literally. It was like an inside joke. someone obviously tried it and then they were like, no, this is actually kind of good. Well, they definitely probably did try it because dildos were used massively in ancient Greece. What about BDSM? Like, are there origins of that historically? Absolutely. Um, One of the oldest depictions we have is called uh, the Tomb of the Whipping, which you can visit from the Etruscan civilization, which is basically this tomb that was decorated uh, with two men spanking and flogging a woman and everyone just kind of mutually pleasuring one another. Practices of like sadomasochism date all the way back to the ancient world. You know, that was one fantastic example of it. But even further back, we have uh, rituals to the goddess Inanna, where (laughs) all of her Uh, attendants would cross-dress and they would dance around a fire um, and they would practice sadomasochistic orgies until they were so imbued by um, pleasure and pain that they would faint or like you know cry in front of her Um, and her depiction if you ever see uh, her like cave depictions she's literally got her leg up on a tiger and she's like holding a whip and everything like she is the OG dominatrix Um, and this is from ancient Mesopotamia you know this is way back and that's you know probably one of our first depictions of a dominatrix so that's all the way back there spanking and flogging and all of that carries so heavily through history that by the time we get to the 1700s Uh, spanking and flagellation become known as the English vice because it was so heavily practiced in England at the time. Everyone was just spanking one another that all of Europe were like, oh, do you want to practice the English vice with me tonight? And you could literally go to brothels and just be spanked. There was a fantastic figure called Teresa Berkeley and she is this uh, dominatrix who runs a brothel at the time specifically for like sadomasochism. And she ended up getting away with it. Like she was an incredibly rich woman at a time where women were not entitled for to a lot, especially working class women. Uh, but she builds a brothel and she employs all of these women who will be a dominatrix or they will be like a submissive. And she gets away with it because all of her clients are really high profile people. So King George is coming in and she's spanking him. 
And she can get away with whatever she wants because she has the literal receipts of the king's kink. So no one touched her. Wow, okay. She could expose most uh, great authority figures' kinks. Um, So no one wanted to touch her. And she invents what's now known as the Berkeley horse and is found in a lot of like BDSM dungeons today. Maybe some people's garage, no judgment. (laughs) Um, But it's this wooden trestle um, where men or women um, or non-binary can get strapped down onto it and they're legs and hands are tied and they can just be spanked and so Teresa kind of invents this machine that would be perfect for and you can adjust it to how flexy the person is and it's still used today and then she would just kind of soak her birches uh, to make them hard or soft depending on what the person wanted Um, and for a very high price you could be spanked by Teresa Berkeley. Do you know if there was any other high profile or renowned, like, you know, renowned historical figures that were her clients? So a lot of her records, she was a really fantastic secret keeper. Yeah. And she did her job well. She did her job really (laughs) well throughout her entire life. But the downside of that is that we don't know who the figures were because Mm. she would refer to them through code names. King George, uh, who was only found out because someone in a letter reported that he liked to have his ass tortured by Teresa Berkeley. <laughs> so we're like, okay, so that's one of them. <laughs> okay, this is what I love about letter writing. And yes. this is something that you, I think probably some of my favourite videos that you do <laughs> post are people who you would never know their secret lives mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the letters that they wrote. Yes. Um, I would love to go through some of those people and if you want to read some of the letters. Absolutely. Okay. The first one I want to talk about is James Joyce. Who doesn't want to talk about James Joyce? Ulysses. Like, I just, when I think of him, I think of just like the most intellectual person Mm -hmm. when it comes to literature. And I think of like historic, incredible literature works. Yeah. Ulysses. Like, I think of him. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want you to read a letter. That he so who was this to? Was this to his wife? So James Joyce, uh, in December of uh, nineteen twelve, writes a series of letters to his wife Nora, uh, Nora Barnacle, which is a fantastic name, I think. Yes, um, <laughs> but he writes a series of letters to her at a period of time where they're like traveling apart from one another, so they can't talk to one another or do whatever they would normally do. And we do not have the replies from Nora, despite utter want for them. But in December, she writes him a letter that is so dirty and so filthy that he is so taken back in his letter that she would say any of that stuff that he kind of tries to get into it himself. Um, And the letter... (laughs) is all about farting and they have a correspondence for about two months in which they just exchange really sexy letters to one another about farts he refers to her as his sweet little whorish fuckbird at the start of each letter and <laughs> i just people are really like they're pulling out bay they call they're calling people baby daddy it's like no. hello call I me wa- your whorish little fuckbird <laughs> I want nothing less. (laughs) Or he'll occasionally call her his uh, sweet little C word. Um, But it's, um, I I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, But, you know, they will go along the lines of Nora, my sweet little whorish fuck bird. 
You had an ass full of farts that night, darling, and I fucked them out of you. Big, fat fellows, long, windy ones, quick little merry cracks, and a lot of tiny little naughty farties, ending in one long gush from your hole. I hope that Nora will let off no end of farts in my face so that I may always know her smell. And I hate that I memorise that. I was like, you're not, <laughs> for anyone listening, you're not reading that. <laughs> that's in my head. <laughs> that's, that's ingrained. We need that remixed into a song. <laughs> anyone listening, I want the uh, I want the absolute bass drop edition. <laughs> I just, I'm like, I can't. I'm obsessed with it. I'm actually obsessed with it. It just, I would never think of him and I would never think of that letter. And that's what I just think is so brilliant. But you know? They're so wonderful because they're like a series of letters as well. It's not just like one that he's like, I like farts. There's there's so many of them. I mean, I love this one because it's a, it's not just farts. It's also um, poo. You know, he's fairly into poo. And so this is a fantastic one where he says, fuck me if you can squatting in the closet with your clothes up, grunting like a young sow doing her dung and a big, fat, dirty, sneaking thing coming slowly out of your backside. <laughs> it's just madness. James Joyce. James Joyce. James Joyce, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Another person who can relate to this. Mozart. <laughs> I like to call him a Mozart now. I think that's more appropriate. But <laughs> So what I love so much is he wrote a, was it a song? Lech, lech, you say it. Lech, me lech mesh im marsh, yeah. which uh, lick me in the ass. But that isn't his only song. Like he writes multiple songs about poo, uh, not just that one, which I actually did not realise for the longest time. And then I was getting confused between all the lyrics I was reading and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not this one. No, he writes multiple songs about farts and poo and licking people in the ass, bringing us back to our conversation on rimming. Um, but I think my favourite one... Uh, uh, lick my ass right well and clean. Um, this is meant to be sung in canon, um, so I, I can't do this in the eight-part harmony in which it was written, but I, I will. <laughs> Someone listening can? <laughs> Anyone with choir experience can. Um, what's so fantastic is that like, when his wife, after his death, sent all of these to the publishers, she kind of writes like a little note on them and says they may need to be adapted, some of these. Um, and so these were, um, Lick My Ass became Letters Be Glad. Um, and, you know, references to Licking Ass was taken out to Letters Be Glad. Um, but now, later in history, we've refound the initial uh, songs. Uh, so we can hear the beautiful lyrics, which, as written, were... Lick my ass nicely, lick it nice and clean, nice and clean, lick my ass. That's a greasy desire, nicely buttered. Like the licking of roast meat, my daily activity. There will lick more than two, come on, just try it. And lick, 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 everyone lick their asses for themselves. I'm like, Mozart, I don't think we can, babe. He was Who's... clearly very flexible. I'm like, who? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> And Mozart was like down at yoga every day, clearly. <laughs> Just, <laughs> he nailed it. <laughs> Composition in the morning, bit of flexi in the night, like <laughs> But it wasn't just his letters. Like, back when he is little, well, not little, he's 20, but he writes a series of letters to his love interest, who is also his first cousin, um, and, like, instructs her to shit on herself 
And like his dirty letters to her are all about shit. Um, I think I think this one's in my head as well. But there was one that just goes like, well, I wish you a good night. Shit in the bed with all your might. Uh, sleep soundly, my love, and try to kiss your own behind. Um, and he just writes like the weirdest letters to her um asking her to like let the shit roll down her face so she can smell it and lick it but it wasn't just Mozart his mum also writes about shit in her letters and I think it's like a family inside joke that every time the mum's writing to Mozart's dad or Mozart is writing writing to his love interest they're writing about shit (laughs) but but they were into it, but they also kind are they kind of taking the piss? I think they're taking the piss and they're into it. You don't write this yeah. to your love interest and be like, We shit in the bed with all your might and like yeah. tell me about it in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kinda of like the breadsticks with the oil. It's like it's an inside joke, but it's also like kinda of serious, you know? Uh, so I it, it's one of those you know, the argument that kinks are hereditary, like maybe in Mozart's uh Mozart's world he did develop his uh, shit fetish from his mum. I was going to say, is this because obviously these are just figures that we've been able to find out somehow, Mm -hmm. historically, we're into this kind of stuff, but were they considered really the minority? Like, is this, is like a small percentage of people in history that are into? Like, no, I I feel safely to say no. Yeah. Um, And I think we only find it shocking today because all of this information ironically is quite accessible like the the letters of Joyce and everything when they were sold to Cornell University the public had access to them when Mozart's letters uh songs and letters were kind of refound they've been there but we just don't seem to talk about the kinky stuff but it's always been right there within even the his like historical figures that we know about let alone you know other figures that we haven't delved that much into and if you think that you know massive figures like Rousseau, Mozart, Einstein, James Joyce all of them have these kinky histories and they have been so heavily in our uh, peripheral all of this time just wait until you find out about King George wanting to have his ass tortured from other letters. We've just always been kinky. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Catherine the Great's, like, room, sex room with all her stuff and all the different, you know. But this is why I think you're you're not only just because you are so great and so intelligent <laughs> um, and so enthusiastic about what you do, but I think this is why you've also done so well on TikTok is because people are so hungry to know that they're not alone in certain things when it comes to sex and absolutely and gender and and queerness and that kind of stuff and I feel like your TikTok really allows people to just look at something that someone was doing like <laughs> thousands of years ago and be like no I'm also into tentacle porn do you know what I mean absolutely and I think that's what's so great about it that because on on the surface level, all of these studies um, and stories are really fun and they're entertaining and they're, they're funny. We can laugh at them. But the, the underside of all of that is that when we are telling these stories of history and we're writing sex back into these pages, we're making people who haven't felt represented finally see themselves in history. If we can go back and say, Einstein was polyamorous. Mozart was into shit. Um, Catherine the Great loved to get down in her red room of pain. We can kind of see these historical figures that previously just didn't feel human. They're larger than life. They're historical figures and they're untouchable. And then all of a sudden, they're human again. They like sex. They masturbated. 
they had desires that were unrequited. They had kinks that they were too scared to practice but only could write about. They had others that they practiced and didn't like, you know? They suddenly feel human again. And I think that's why it's it's so important to talk about sex. Honestly, Esme, I wish that we could just, like, talk for hours. <laughs> Me too. You know that I am going to go home and just continue to scroll um, and learn more. We'll have to organise another time for you to come back in. I am always down to read some historical people's letters. Yeah. And yeah. if anyone listening has some questions, maybe, that we can potentially get you in for a round two and can answer their questions. <laughs> Give me all your favourite uh, historical figures so I yes. can... Uh... <laughs> investigate. Investigate. I want to get my uh, little detective thing on. <laughs> no, I love that. No, seriously, thank you so much. This has just been one of my favourite chats. I really have oh. loved this. Thank you. Thank you. James Joyce's farts will do that to a lot of people. <laughs> I honestly can't. I just can't. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for letting me rant about kink. <laughs> no, this is the perfect place to do it. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Seriously, I was not over-exaggerating when I said that I could talk to her for hours. She has probably been one of the most energetic guests I've ever spoken to, but just her passion, her brain, her intelligence, all of it, I, yeah, as you could hear, I'm obsessed. Um, and I hope that you really enjoyed that chat. And like I said, I think that we need to get Esme back on for another round of kinky history. And if there's anything that you like want to ask her or if there's anyone that you want her to explore, you can DM us at Triple J The Hookup. And I also just want to give a huge shout out to Imogen. She actually messaged us and told us about Esme. I think I'd seen her stuff on TikTok before, but just never, like, I don't know, I must have been in my zombie mode and just didn't even think about getting her on. But I, yeah, loved this chat so much. And I feel like it was probably such a beneficial chat for everyone listening. So thank you, Imogen. And this is why I love it when you message us with, you know, your topic ideas or your questions, or if you have come across someone and you think that they're incredible and that we should interview them. It's honestly so, so helpful. So yeah. Just shoot us a message anytime. Catch you next time. Bye.